Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. We have a lot coming at you this week. This is our third show since the start of the Third Intifada, the war in Gaza and Israel and Palestine, the Holy Land in general being engulfed in the biggest war it's experienced, frankly, since the 60s, some would even say the 40s. So this is um, a really big deal. Obviously, it's going to be the focus of the show for a while now, in tandem, of course, with the war in Ukraine as World War III rages on, new fronts developing, it seems now, monthly and weekly. But we have some unfortunate news to come at you today, coming out of the Holy Land directly. This first part of the show, we're going to talk all about church stuff, some in Ukraine, mostly in the Holy Land. Dimitri, what is the first item? How are you doing this evening as well? Doing great, Conrad. Naturally, the the biggest news of, of the week, and probably it could be even the month, the Israeli bombing of the Church of St. Porphyrios in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip. This news came around on the 19th of October, and unfortunately the solemn news coincided with the Ukrainian High Rada, which is the Ukrainian Duma Parliament equivalent, their Congress, issuing a ban on the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is the canonical Orthodox, Orthodox Church. They're affiliated with Russia, naturally, obviously coming out of there, but Ukraine, the government actually instituting a ban. And this church, of course, has close to 12,000 clergymen across all of Ukraine, about 10,000 Orthodox parishes, deacons, bishops, and the Ukrainian government has just officially signed the ban, as in anybody associated with this church structure, or at least once they ratify this particular bill and it goes through parliament, which it already has been voted on, uh, anybody affiliated with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church will now, now be officially prosecuted or the Ukrainian prosecution is going to work overtime. Naturally, these two events occurring literally on the same day, the 19th of October, have led to many, many to speculate that, in fact, it's probably the Ukrainian parliament, the High Rada, actually chose to, chose this very strategic time of tragedy and death occurring in the Middle East to use that as a distraction in order to pass this very controversial and, frankly, Diocletian-type law into you know, essentially institute it, which even the liberal, I mean, I think even liberals in Europe and America wouldn't agree with, frankly, you know, they're, they're pretty obsessed of, you know, liberty of religion and freedom to do as you will. So I think even, even the normies would, I mean, the people of that particular mindset would disagree with something like this, but it's in, but in fact, they're quite tactical. They've used it to attack the Orthodox church abroad at the same time as a literal Greek Orthodox church of the Jerusalem Patriarchate was bombed in Gaza, unfortunately, by the by none other than the Israeli Air Force. So they dropped a bomb direct. It was a direct hit onto the church hall, which was directly attached to the ancient church of St. Porphyrios, which houses his relics, actually. But the church itself, it goes back to at least the 400s AD. So the, you know, the time when St. Theodosius II, Roman emperors, Pulcheria, Eudokia, all of the great saints, even pre-Justinian type saints of the Roman Empire actually invested in the Holy Land. So this church is one of the original constructs in the, in Roman Palestine, which is now being, of course, uh, demolished. It seems bomb by bomb, you could say. Oh, it's, it's a real tragedy. And of course, this remember people remember this was falsely reported, I guess, in the midst of some bombs falling near the church a week ago. So people got up in a, in a big fuss. People were really mad. People were upset because this is the third oldest Christian church in the world that is still operational and standing, I believe, second oldest Orthodox church. So a very important you know, monument to Christ in, in, in world Christendom. And now, of course, it seems that that was just a prophetic foretelling of what was to come this week. And people are saying, well, the temple itself wasn't destroyed. Well, the temple was damaged. And in reality, what was destroyed was an area where even more wounded people, you know, both Muslim and Christian were being held 
And so far we've confirmed, I believe it was, was it 12 or 16 Christians confirmed. Uh, some of them related actually to Congressman Justin Amash. These are, you know, Jerusalem Patriarch and Antiochian, you know, Christians. And, and it's a true tragedy. As, as Archbishop Alexios and others have said, these are, you know, the new martyrs of Gaza. He said that when he was commemorating them as a Palestinian flag hung below him and he sensed their bodies. And he was, of course, wished well by Patriarch Theophilos, who disavowed the Zionist aggression against the churches. Patriarch John X of Antioch joined him in that statement. Patriarch Kirill supported both of them in their efforts. Uh, the Archbishop of Jordan, as well, has been kind of a key mediator between all of these characters as kind of a safe third position where people can go to. And people, I think, in the West Bank even are already fleeing to Georgia, uh, to Jordan, despite the fact that, you know, Jordan does, we discussed this last episode, have a contentious relationship with you know, Palestinian refugees and whatnot. But you know, it, it truly is a tragedy, and I think there's no coincidence. To, to hear more about how this might be relevant, be sure to listen to this week's Ether Hour. We have a whole lot of things to talk about. It's really a fascinating episode. But October 19th is when these two horrible chatties stuck the Orthodox world, and some of the saints commemorated on this day. We have St. John of Kronstadt. He was actually born on October 19th. And we also have uh, St. Anthony, Schema Archbishop of the Key of Caves, Lavra which, of course, directly ties into the illegalization of, you know, of what's going on. And then there's, of course, New Martyr Nicholas de Vila of Jerusalem. And, you know, these are you know, the fact that we know that the devil likes to work in his kind of anti-Christian, you know, inverted ways. And so it makes, it makes sense that on these joyous feasts of which prayers are offered to saints that are so directly tied to these conflicts, you know, saints that, you know, are directly watching over these regions, you know, of course, the evil one would seek to would seek to, you know, rattle these saints like that. Of course we know that doesn't happen there, rejoicing in the eternal life of Christ. But to us here on earth it, it really is rattling and people are starting to despair, I think, unfortunately. There's not that many Christians in Gaza. There's like three thousand of them. And uh, a large percentage of them were just wiped out in one fell swoop. And of course, there are still people that are trying to run interference, say, oh, well, they're housing Hamas. It's as, 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 a, as Patriarch Prime made on Twitter, despite uh, all of these Hamas fighters hiding in churches, hiding behind Christians, the strike managed to kill no Hamas fighters. So I just don't think it's safe. I just don't think it's honest to say that Israel is, you know, going after any and all ethno-religious enemies, mostly these Palestinians that would support Hamas. But they have no problem if a few, as they would call them, idolatrous, you know, Christian temples were destroyed in the process. It, they view it as a happy accident at best, if not something that, well, we have some missiles, let's toss them that way. I, I don't think that's too much to say. Yeah, that's right. We've heard so many disgusting excuses from liberals, pro, I would, I would say, I want to say explicitly pro-Zionist forces. Anti, you know, anti-Orthodox sentiment is quite broad at the moment, but the excuses they make are quite astounding. So I made a mistake. So Saint Porphyrius, of course, was from the 400s, and he was actually the bishop of the region, the bishop of Gaza, and at the time. But the church itself, I heard excuses, Conrad, where they were saying, "Well, the church was actually heavily renovated. It doesn't go all the way to the 400s AD. It's only, it only, it was renovated heavily and rebuilt in the 1100s and 1200s. So it's only a thousand years old. It's not 1600 years old. So that's okay. I'm sure that's accept, you know." No, how if even if the church was ten years old, it would not be acceptable for the IDF to be dropping bombs on the church hall, anything adjacent to the church. In fact, I mean the fact that they're just dropping these bombs on civilian targets to begin with, claiming that there are Hamas fighters. I mean, the ridiculous part is because Hamas is a very Islam, a Sunni Islamic organization. So frankly, they're not affiliated with Christianity in any 
anyway, but that doesn't stop them from bombing even as we as we revealed uh, as was revealed at least on the 17th of October that a Baptist hospital as well. So in fact, two tragedies almost on the same day, and a lot of civilians dying and almost no Hamas fighters actually perishing according to these strikes it seems like israel is raining terror on the population trying to get them to submit to kneel down to to heal before uh before what would what should be at least the, we're expecting to be a proper ground invasion now the ground invasion being delayed is probably on one hand providential on the other hand i think israel really understands looking at and we'll speak about this later in the episode the overall opinions of of the will of, of the world exactly on the conflict and what's being witnessed here in the middle east i think they're trying to gauge how much support they'll have who will be on their side and which potential sides will join the conflict but naturally i mean this tragedy is the probably the biggest the most negative event to occur to orthodox christians in the in israel for the last i want to say since uh, since the state of israel came into being probably the greatest tragedy since this state of israel came into existence i want to say and since the 1947-48 war when there was a lot of abuse ongoing with just greek and R russian um, priests and monks being abused by idf as well as other communist related forces in the, in the holy land which we speak about in the latest day for our episode pretty in depth so yeah definitely a pretty tragic week a lot of really dark news but again i agree with archbishop alexios and some of the other bishops who have spoken out in in support there is um there is a high likelihood that these particular christians who perished from these bombings they should be considered uh for at least as passion bearers you know if not confessors of the faith those who died and in fact the greeks may even canonize them in a few years time as new martyrs simply because they have died you know they've lived under you could say a zionist occupation surrounded by people of not of their faith essentially sunni muslims they lived alongside them they probably you know, they probably treated their neighbors very well. In fact, the relationship... Well, let's think about the situation that they were in. I mean, right? Those people, in theory, people like, oh, evacuate, evacuate. It's like, look, well, in theory, if you're supposed to trust the Israeli government as the secular government defending Western civilization, you would assume they would treat the church as a non-combatant, as a location where the wounded would be being treated. So logically, these Christians, much like their Archbishop Alexios, who said he would stay with them, they would stay there and care for the people that are, are wounded care for the people that are, are being, you know, there's thousands of wounded. It doesn't matter how many people evacuate already. There's still thousands of people buried under the rubble. So those people need to be able to go somewhere. And these people were then bombed by people who hold antipathy towards the Christian faith explicitly, you know, literally on Telegram. I'm posting this. I have Zionists on our Telegram channel laugh reacting to this because I think it's funny that a Christian temple gets, you know, blown up by Zionist Jews. So the fact that they perished under that, I agree, makes them very much contenders for, for passion bearers. And Archbishop Alexios, who I'm sure had to wipe some dust off his forehead and off of his mantle when all of this cleared off to see and report the tragedy to people in Jordan who first reported that to everybody else. I'm sure when he said that, he knew what he meant. That's right. We have to, we have to also consider just the fact that, look, the reality is the Palestinians, even Hamas itself, did not abuse the Christians of Gaza or anywhere in the even in the West Bank. In fact, Palestinians and Christians have lived side by side for quite some time, at least since the beginning of the State of Israel. We can even say since since World War One ended and the Ottoman Empire fell apart, Christians and and Muslim Arabs have lived side by side for 
essentially almost 100 years now, you can say since the 1920s, with no conflict whatsoever. And the fact that and this church of St. Porphyrius of Gaza allowing refugees in for decades on end since, you know, at least since the first and second intifada actually was used as to provide refuge. They provided food, water, as well as even uh, housing. I mean, from, from what I read, Conrad, and some of the reports, they allowed at least, at least if it could fit, at least a thousand refugees, both in the hall and in the church itself, which is an enormous amount. And they, of course, included not just Christians, but Muslims as well. So there was no differentiation. It was a true Christ-like love that the pastors that the pastor of this church actually showed towards their neighbors. And in fact, yeah, it looks like Israel has punished them for their love and in fact, yeah, has committed a, a grave war crime. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing else to call it. It's bombardment of civilian targets. So again, uh, the world really did condemn it, I think, for the most part. In fact, those countries, even that side of Israel, really didn't comment on it. In fact, like, you know, we're talking about Joe Biden or even Prime Minister of India Modi. So those who are very pro-Israeli didn't really speak about this church bombing. And those who are, again, more anti-Israel, in fact, so countries like Turkey, who we should discuss a bit later, have in fact condemned it as well, which is you know, I, I find it good that the that the Islamic Islamic world has kind of united around around the fact that well they should be respected as well as the Orthodox churches as well. I think that's a good point of unity. At least you know, mutual respect should be there. Well, when it comes to unity, that's a great point. And before I get to Dimitri, I want to hear from you what what it really means that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has been banned. What that will mean on the ground. Then we're going to talk a little bit more about Patriarch Bartholomew before we move into some real World War Three type geopolitics, but I have to bring up, you know, St. Paisios, always relevant. It, we never, it would be foolish for us to go an episode without thinking of St. Paisios and Metropolitan Neophytos. But St. Paisios, he said, the Jews, inasmuch as they'll have great power and the help of the European leadership, will become proud and insolent beyond measure and conduct themselves shamelessly. They'll try to rule Europe. They'll play all sorts of tricks, but the resulting persecutions will lead Christians to unite completely. However, they won't unite in the way desired by those who are now engaging in various machinations to create a single church united under a single religious leadership. Christians will unite because the unfolding situation will naturally separate the sheep from the goats. Then the prophecy, one flock and one shepherd, will actually come to pass. And I think in many ways, he is uh, talking about something that just occurred, which is the schism, the 10-year-long schism between the Jerusalem Patriarchate and the Patriarchate of Antioch has been healed. Uh, as of October 20th, the uh, Antiochian Patriarchate and their synod met and decided that they wanted to end the schism that had been ongoing with the Jerusalem Patriarchate, which was actually happening over the issue of Qatar. And uh, Qatar is technically the jurisdiction of the Antiochian Patriarchate, but what had happened was the Jerusalem Patriarchate had sent a hieromonk there, and they had then elevated him to the position of Metropolitan. This was Archimandrite Makarios. They used him to create an Archdiocese of Qatar and consecrate him as Metropolitan of Qatar, just, a, just one guy for one person for a, for a whole metropolis. But in Antioch, you know, they have, a few they have a few priests and people there, so they didn't appreciate that. But the Antiochian Patriarch today released a statement, and we're recording this October 20th, so that's why I say today. They say, The fathers of the Holy Synod of Antioch raise fervent prayers to the King of Peace and the Lord of Mercies to wipe away every tear from the eyes of the Palestinian people and to remove all injustice, oppression, homelessness, and displacement. They call on all their children to consecrate next Sunday in all the parishes of the Antiochian Sea for raising prayers that God may grant justice and peace in the land of peace and to collect aid donations to relieve this afflicted people. 
Understanding that the current circumstances require intensification of prayer and cooperation, the Holy Synod decided to restore the severed ecclesiastical relations with the Patriarchate of Jerusalem. The Synod assigned the committee in charge of the Patriarchate to communicate with the brethren of the Patriarchate of Jerusalem to solve the dispute over ecclesiastical jurisdiction of Qatar, thus preserving the right of ecclesiastical jurisdiction of the Antiochian See. The Synod also decided to send a search delegation to visit Amman, expressing love for the people of the Antiochian See to the people of the Patriarchate of Jerusalem and standing by them in these difficult and crucial circumstances. So anti-Zionism has literally healed a schism in the church. You know, what say you papists? We don't need we don't need an infallible vicar on earth to to heal schisms and to heal, you know, splits between people. You know, this is unironically though, this is the Holy Spirit at work and this is this is a very good thing to see. That's right. And God does use tragedy sometimes to bolster the bolster the faithful and to heal certain wounds and it, it does it does seem like somewhat contradictory but what we're seeing in the ukraine i'm not sure what exactly will come of this frankly as you mentioned it's it is a it is probably the biggest move of persecution we've seen so far and yes it sounds a bit redundant because you know we've spoken about ukraine actually banning organizations linked to russia and that took place in december 2022 when zelensky announced actually by decree that the national security and defense council of ukraine can impose personal sanctions on representatives so individuals this is why bishops and priests have been taken to trial multiple times so individuals as well as organizations as in small groups for example like coffee hour groups or any extra like children's camps any like laity clubs which are associated found to be associated with russia could be persecuted now the ukrainian high rada has voted on actually making illegal it, it has qualified that the entire ukrainian orthodox church which is under metropolitan onufri has been technically found to be complicit in being tied to Russia. So now the entire organization of the church is legal. Well, technically. And what does that mean? Like practically on the ground? Well, fortunately, and again, this is providential perhaps, but Ukraine has a different church diocese control model to the Russian Federation and even Belarus. So around 1948, after World War II, St. Luke of Crimea famously proposed to the Russian Synod to Patriarch Alexios, this is around, the Stalin was still alive back then, but he proposed to Patriarch Alexios I that Russia actually change its model from decentralized parish controls, where every parish has its own budget, every parish has its own council, and every parish has essentially a portion of land, and it's signed on as real estate to the parish, so the parish controls its own its own land and property. He, he asked that, that this model be changed to a more centralized diocese control. So the actual diocese center, the cathedral controls, all the other small parishes, but could be even hundreds of churches. And they will answer, they're all owned by one particular council, one particular boss, which is the bishop. And I mean, both of these models have a right to exist. And I'm sure different countries in the Orthodox world have different models, right? Especially in, in, in America, God knows how exactly this particular system functions, right? So, but in Ukraine, funny enough, this decentralized model persisted, even though Russia in the 1990s has moved on to the centralized diocese model in Ukraine, every single parish, and as I mentioned, there are between 10 and 12,000 parish communities across all of Ukraine have a decentralized control model, which is why even the schism when it has spread since 2018, and even prior to that, during the fake false patriarch filler at schism, the schism spread very slowly. It was parish to parish. There was no, none of this business where one bishop would go into schism and hundreds of parishes would follow him. No, every parish has a council and a priest and a deacon, and they can decide for themselves, do they want to follow their bishop into schism or do they want to simply disconnect themselves from the rotten corpse? And in fact, this is uh, what has been, this is essentially what this means for this persecution bill is now that every parish, there will be an investigation committee and they'll be looking at every single parish, thousands of parishes around Ukraine, 
and investigating whether or not they're tied to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which of course they are, frankly, because that's the, the church they're under. They're, all their documents are signed, you know, and they're all mentioning the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. They can't hide, they can't lie about this. And so they're going to persecute one parish at a time, and it'll be a very slow burn type persecution. This is not going to be a, a broad ban. It'll take many years. I mean, you know, God forbid that you know the Ukrainian war continues and Russia remains without victory and without freeing the Ukrainian Orthodox people. But let's just say that it does continue. It'll take a few years for them to get through. I mean, it could even take a decade to get through hundreds and thousands of Ukrainian parishes around all of Ukraine. So it is a very Soviet-type, uh, catacomb-type persecution which will start taking place. And they'll be taking many priests and many deacons and many parish council members to court, saying that, look, you're the treasurer of this parish? Are you associated with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Metropolitan University? He'll say, yes. Okay, you're going to jail for two, three years. You're being fined five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. You know, there'll be those sort of offenses. It'll be very tough and very a lot of pressure. And again, this is the demonic side of it, Conrad. How do you get yourself out of this situation very easily and swiftly? You join the schism. You join Metropolitan Epiphany schism, a false metro metropolitan. So you have to join Zelensky's pocket SBU church, and all these problems will disappear. Can you imagine the pressure now on those communities which are weak in the faith? As Patriot Kirill has just stated, he said, you know, this whole conflict, it preys on those who are weak in the faith in Ukraine. Those badly catechized, those without little faith, you know, like Christ spoke about Apostle Peter. Those who doubt will fall away very quickly. And this is, I mean, again, it's a fortunate on one hand that it's so disconnected and it'll take a while for the, you know, this, this particular state apparatus to get to everybody. But at the same time, you know, it spells, it spells great pressure on the Orthodox Christians. So we have to pray for the, you, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Metropolitan Onufri may be the, one of the first people to actually be prosecuted. And, you know, again, Monasteries as well. This involves monasteries, which the the, the lavras are going to go. The you know the tens of hun you know, hundreds of monasteries will be affected. This will be very far-reaching. And this event, it started in December last year, but it's finally reached its apex here. We're almost at the end of this year, so it's almost taken an entire year of persecution to build up to this point of huge tragedy for the Orthodox Christians in Ukraine. Oh, it truly is a tragedy, and I wish that I could say that what St. Pacio said and that has now been fulfilled between Antioch and Jerusalem could be true for the Russian and Greek churches, but alas, it appears that the ecumenical patriarch is, I hate to say this, but perhaps too far gone at this point to be brought back, to brought back into the fold of orthodoxy that is now truly uniting. I mean, the patriarchate of Antioch, without hesitation in their love for the patriarch of Jerusalem, put aside put aside this this you know this minor territorial dispute and immediately you know resumed communion and is like we'll figure that out later was is this unprecedented banning of an entire canonical body and a and an oft considered saintly hierarch within metropolitan onufri did this cause contrition and a a looking inwards from those in the fanar and patriarch bartholomew unfortunately i can report no such thing this is from the Union of Orthodox Journalists. On October 15th, 2023, after the liturgy at the Cathedral of the Holy Apostles Andrew and Great Martyr Dimitri, this is in Madrid, Patriarch Bartholomew told the clerics of the Spanish and Portuguese metropolis of the Ecumenical Patriarchate that he considers the criminal prosecution of Ukrainian Orthodox Church hierarchs to be fair and justified. This is a source from the metropolis that reported this. According to Patriarch Bartholomew, he believes that the reports in the international media about the unfairness of the persecutions of Metropolitan Paul, Metropolitan Jonathan, Metropolitan Feodosi, Metropolitan Yosef, and Metropolitan Longin have no grounds. The head of the Ecumenical Patriarchate is convinced that all of them have violated Ukrainian law and should be held accountable for their actions. As previously reported, the head of the Ecumenical Patriarchate hopes for a meeting with the Pope in Kiev. And yet again, this is from the Union of Orthodox Journalists. They don't really get things wrong. They're all on the ground in Ukraine. So... 
Unfortunately, it seems that we are moving headlong towards that fearful, fearful 2025 when it appears that what what, what appears to be an apostate branch of, of the Eastern Church will be will be joining the the demon in the West. You know the that that whore. Yeah, that's right. This is really unfortunate news, given that Patriarch Bartholomew. You know, we've spoken about him with Father Trifon on our previous episode. We've spoken about Patriarch Bartholomew with Father John very briefly, and just generally, we, you know, we we always give His Eminence, the Patriarch of Constantinople in Istanbul, a, a way out. You know, we're always expecting a comeback moment, but it seems that the hole is being dug deeper and deeper, and he's digging his own spiritual grave here. And when we can't be teachers of bishops and patriarchs here, and that is not even our goal, but his own synod, his council allows him to move forward with these stupid and destructive heretical ideas. And in fact, at this point, he's a, I don't know if it's a heresiarch himself, but it's at least he's a promulgator of schism. And in fact, now he supports the outright persecution of Orthodox bishops in Ukraine, who he probably has not even met. Uh, I doubt Patriarch Bartholomew has read their cases, or has, uh, you know, at least read exactly what they're being persecuted for. So, prosecuted for, legally speaking. I mean, he's, he's claiming that it's all justified. Like, have Patriarch Bartholomew, I doubt you've read Bishop Longin's, you know, Bishop Longin's court documents, even like a summary brief of why, why he's been in prison, and, or even Bishop Theodosius, who was acquitted recently like again there's no nobody is really looking into the details and patriarch bartholomew if, like and i'm tired of using excuses as well for you know his eminence uh, patriarch bartholomew because people keep saying that oh well he's being blackmailed or he's being um you know they're using uh they, you know they're bribing him or he's just senile like joe biden right it's just dementia or he's very sick like somebody said yeah he's sick with cancer he's going for chemo it doesn't matter what the excuse is the saints i mean Saint Nectarius had cancer as well. Saint Paisios passed away from cancer. Who we like the people, bishops, monks, monastics, clergymen, we're all human. Laymen, we all get sick, we all die, our minds also perish over time. Saint Vladimir Bogoyevlensky, the one who spread the protocols throughout Russia towards the end, he was also going a little bit senile and he had somewhat of, of dementia. And before he was martyred by the Bolsheviks, one of the first bishops to die, he was the Bishop of Moscow. But he he was very right wing, very much part of the Black Hundreds, but he was also, you know, he, he made some mistakes towards the end, and he's a saint in our church. But yes, even he had a bit of, you know, they were saying towards the end, he was a little bit getting a little bit uh, hazy, his mind. He couldn't, you know, properly, properly give forward his ideas. So it is possible that Patriarch Bartholomew is, you know, receiving a Biden-esque type, I don't know what you would call it, like a grooming of sorts, where the people around him, these archons, these dark, not even, I wouldn't even say they're Greeks, because these people betray the the the, the Byzantine idea, the, Rome, the Roman Greek ideals at, at all, every turn. These are real Hellenic, Hellenic pagan type characters who are pushing Patriarch Bartholomew into, um, I mean, on the road to hell. I mean, that's explicitly what they're doing. And in fact, he's meeting with Zelensky, he's meeting with all these really really bizarre figures, you know, heads of CIA, and this is, of course, really negative, frankly. So we do have to we do have to pray for Patriarch Bartholomew, but at this point, we we just have to constitute that, look, he has, he has overstepped. This is a boundary which I don't think the Russian church will forgive. Patriarch Bartholomew, by all accounts, for doing what he's done now, for saying these things, for promoting schism, he needs to go into a monastery detention forever like he needs to be he needs to retire and he needs to forcibly be retired by his own synod this is the solution that's the that's his best outcome to pray away his sins like saint mary of egypt somewhere in the desert on mount athos perhaps but to to honor to sort of 
die on the on the chair of the ecumenical patriarch would probably not serve him well not not in his spiritual not even not even not even in terms of his mental health because the, imagine the pressure he's dealing with like he's literally talking to complete degenerates american politicians great members of the greek liberal parties various schismatics and degenerates from ukraine it's just very destructive for him himself and again it's shameful for us as well as orthodox christians that our i guess the highest judicial power in our church which is the ecumenical patriarch who can hear he can hear church appeals at the highest level is actually that that seat is held by a man such as him so again there's no real solution here except for his own synod his own local church needs to address his particular shortcomings and they're just not doing that in fact and they're all liable for this as well naturally and look i mean as of right now again we're getting closer to 2025 when this could be a breaking point and as of now it would appear that it would be the Fanar Goarch, which I guess would include a lot of the people in the United States. Again, though this bishop by bishop, it would really break down to the point where I think the only people that would join with Patriarch Bartholomew would be him, the Fanariots, some of the Alexandrian bishops, and some of the Cypriot bishops, and maybe some of the bishops under Greece. I don't think all of the Greek bishops, I know not all of the Cypriot bishops, and I know probably most of the Sub-Saharans would just join the African Exarchate. So if you take that into account... If if we somehow got into communion with the Malankara, let alone something happening with the Ethiopians, the Orthodox Church around the world would still be much larger than than what it was before that small group of of modernists and you know crypto papists decided to decided to abandon the faith. So again, we don't hope for anything like that to happen, but it does appear that if that if that is the path that some wish to go down, it will very much be, as Saint Pacio said, you know, a separation of the sheep from the goats. But unless you have anything else to say in that regard, Dimitri, it's time to get into some of the some of the world geopolitics here, the real politique, and that involves Putin discussing. This was in right after America sent its eastern, uh, it, you know, the Dwight, the Eisenhower and the Ford after those arrived in the eastern Mediterranean. Putin announced that they would be fly, he would be flying MiG bombers in the neutral zone in the southern Black Sea right off the coast of Turkey, which means that they are, those bombers are then in range of the carriers that are in the eastern Mediterranean. And Putin said this very casually. He said this, you know, just, I don't, he literally says like, I don't mean to alarm anybody, but we're doing this. And that was that. And he basically was just making the message clear that we're watching this very closely and we're aware of the, the World War III implications that are going on in the Levant right now. Yeah, just before I mentioned the fact that, you know, David Erhan's going to look out his window one day and see uh, top-tier Russian fighter planes flying, uh, you know, near the south of the Bosphorus <laughs> along through the Trabzon past Istanbul. Yeah, before I mention that, I think it's very nice generally in the Greek world to see the two, I guess, most persecuted and most highly pressured churches, so the Church of Jerusalem and the Church of Antioch, unite again. Because, in fact, these two are the most pro-Russian churches, but also the two most conservative churches. If you think about it, Cyprus would also be a close candidate, but they're unfortunately too tied into the ecumenical patriarch and their recent Fail, I mean, the recent failure to elect uh, Metropolitan, the office of Morphu, you know, has kind of shown itself, but we'll see what exactly transpires. But out of the five or six local Greek jurisdictions, I would say that it's it's a good thing that Jerusalem and Antioch stand united in not, not just their support for the united Orthodox world, as in everybody should be together with no schisms. They, they're kind of like the, the middle ground. They're welcoming everybody and the Greeks and the Russians and the Slavs, but also just the fact that um, now they're united amongst themselves. And in fact, you know, they're, they're the ones facing the most pressure from countries such as Turkey, ISIS, now Israel, the Zionists. So it's it's really quite, quite heartwarming. But generally about the MiGs, I mean, that's that's just intense. Like you have to consider, these are not just fighter planes who shoot missiles, which fly about, you know, 100 meters or 
even one kilometer. These missile, these these MiGs have, these MiG fighter planes have the capacity to hold Kinjal missiles, and Kinjal missiles are a new technology, a new technology which only Russia has. Frankly, I don't think any other country on earth, including the America, actually has developed hypersonic missiles of this level. Russia has tested this many times in secret facilities all over Siberia. I mean, this is the official take that these missiles actually do fire at super fast speeds they can bypass any missile defense system in the world because they, they just fly very fast and i mean i'm using layman's terms here but the, the plane essentially launches this missile it flies in a straight line very very quickly bypasses any defense system hits the target causes a gigantic explosion and it can fly up to a thousand kilometers in fury so we're talking about if it shoots that missile over turkey you could literally hit the aircraft carrier on i mean uh, Distance-wise, I mean, you can calculate for yourself. Look at look at a map. It's frankly a huge range. So this this is a direct statement by Putin that he's willing to actually fly his strongest weapon. This and this is Russia's besides nuclear missiles. These hypersonic missile Kinjal missiles attached to these planes is the most powerful thing Russia has. And in fact, many have said this is why America hasn't responded like on with troops on the ground in any in any place like Ukraine and Crimea because it's actually afraid of what these missiles could do to aircraft carriers or to even American fleets. Because there is no real way to defend yourself against missiles that fly that quickly. Even if Russia has only a few of them, it's simply too much of a threat. So I think Putin has really made a statement. And again, we'll speak about what Stilkov and other military analysts think about this particular conflict or what it could turn into. But we should consider that, yes, uh, this is a very brave moment by Putin. And I think it's very commendable, in fact. Because in making a statement, he's like, look... America isn't the boss of the Middle East anymore. We aren't living in 2003. You can't just invade Syria. Because again, these aircraft carriers, they're a threat to Syria as well as they are to the Palestinians and as well as they are to Lebanon and Hezbollah, etc. Not that Putin really wants to support Hezbollah, but things, all things need to be considered. We don't know. America is literally run by a senile old man who's controlled by a group of Epsteinian-type Satanists. I mean, this is very, in raw terms, that's what's happening. And I think Putin knows that. And he's afraid he, he just needs to make sure all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. Yeah, again, this is uh, Putin is very much aware of the the broad consequences. Again, we wonder is is he reading the prophecies? Is he aware of, of the of the of the eschatological realities? I mean, we we hope so, right? But but of course, there is um, yeah, Netanyahu talking about this being a long war. We are all eagerly, not eagerly, we're all nervously awaiting the ground offensive which could start at any time we know biden's recent visit to israel has has kind of put that on hold the international community i mean between the church bombings and the hospital bombings and the convoy bombings and just the general nastiness from people like ben shapiro and mark levin people just kind of seeing these mask off moments you know the uh, the u.s knows that you know they got to follow israel into this fire no matter what so they want it to be done on their terms without anything crazy and some of the more ethno-narcissistic Zionists are having a hard time, you know, holding back like that. But it's just important to also realize that I talked about St. Paul's predicting some of this. And remember, he did talk about, you know, wars in the Middle East and things like this happening. But, you know, Metropolitan Nofitos, February 3rd, 2023, I mean, he talks about explicitly, like, the interviewer literally asks him, like, I'm worried about Israel and Iran. And he literally says... He's like, oh, you're not. Are you not worried about Israel? And the person says, yes, I am worried. And he's like, worry more about it. Worry about Israel and Persia. And and then he goes on and he says, thus the war that takes place in Syria, the war that takes place in Ukraine, the war that will start in the whole Middle East soon, and the Chinese will take part in this war. This is how it will turn into a world war. The question must be why God allowed for a third world war to start. The Ukrainian issue is a part of the third world war. It is not the beginning, neither is it the end. 
St. John the Russian, and this is from a conversation that St. Yakovos told him that St. Yakovos had with St. John the Russian. He said, The pilgrims there are many, Father Yakovos, but the faithful are only a few. The world is full of impiety, immorality, and unfaithfulness. For this, this world to be fixed, there must be a war. And this, you know, Mishpaltan Leofitos was talking about a war in Russia and Ukraine, especially regarding the Ukraine schism issue in, you know, February of 2022. Earlier, February 17th is when translations of his speeches from January and late 2022 were translated into English. Uh, Father Elpidios Vagianakis also was talking about this war, you know, months before February 2022 occurred. So the children of these saintly elders, especially in Greece, you know, the, the children of the Athenite tradition really, really saw this coming. And Meshpaltin Yofidos also saw what's going on in Israel coming. And unfortunately, his words lead me to believe that within the next year, there's no way that Iran doesn't get involved in this somehow. And that, of course, does directly involve the United States. The prophecies for you know told by by the Russian saints very much, and this is how you know they're they're all related, and the saints speak with the inspiration, and of course the participation of the Holy Spirit to speak with God's grace, is because they all align in and of themselves. Like you can see, the prophecies they're all they're all, they all attached together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, and it helps you build you know a picture. God is trying to inform us that the you know there are really important things that will take place in the future that people need to be aware of and not to on one hand not to despair on the other hand to have hope and of course be prepared and you know the, the lord's main purpose here naturally is for our salvation and for our repentance so all of this is not for some sort of worldly glory or for epic events to take place but it's for us lay people to not despair when these events do take place even even a slight warning even the fact that the fact that world war three will take place and um you know prophecies like the ones of saint fiafan of poltava about the coming of the new russian Tsar from the romanov dynasty this is these are all great but even Fiofan of Poltava and other saints, and Fiofan of Poltava is buried in France. He was a great um, Russian white army emigre and one of the founding members of Rokor as an archbishop, but and eventually an ascetic monk. But even the other prophecies of the saints, Saint Lawrence of Chernigov, Saint Seraphim of Viritsa, they all speak about a, a coming war which will take place. Like and they not all of them specify exactly which countries will be involved, like Saint Paisios does, but they do speak about a great war which will come before the next reign of the orthodox monarch which will take place after the war so whatever happens next i mean we do have to we do have to anticipate that you know, it's just about living a good orthodox christian life living you know being as christian as possible frankly despite whatever's happening in the outside world whatever material hardships will come and after that god will give us a small time of rest and not just us but the entire world maybe but especially uh, orthodox countries will receive an orthodox monarch again and if we deserve one that is and if we of course survive through repentance and through prayer and russia especially will bring god's mercy to the world in terms of spreading orthodox christianity and spread spreading the good news the gospel will be spread all around and for a short time and then the events of the apocalypse will begin so that's roughly the outline which we see across all Russian prophecies and even the Greek prophecies. And there are, of course, you know, generally speaking, we're not going to go too much into detail, but in a future episode, we'll discuss prophecies relating to figures such as the Marble King and how that could tie into, you know, maybe a reemergence of an old Byzantine emperor similar to the um, the Eupes of Ephesus, you know, when, when, when a sleeping saint finally awakens and then perhaps uh, lives on earth for a short period of time and then maybe reposes. But these are all very, um, very interesting prophecies and very, uh, there's a lot of insight there into the future. But we do need to consider the fact that we don't just speak about wars because they're scary or because there's a 
chance of triumph or there's a chance of defeat or victory for somebody. It's just that God has warned us of these things a long time ago by saints after who lived after the Second World War, which was the greatest conflict mankind has ever known in terms of the tragedy and the calamity which it was brought onto the earth. And that was by our sins. So can you imagine in the sinful duck, we are a lot more sinful now than the humanity was in the 1920s and 30s, despite all the degeneracy that took place then, even in Soviet Russia and Europe, you know, all around the world. But consider these days, like... I mean, even even neutral countries, like even countries which are majority pagan and atheistic, there will be the, the next conflict will be a very serious one, and we have to kind of prepare ourselves. And how do we prepare? We just we read the saints, we read the Bible, the Scripture, attend church while we can, memorize the services. We won't have, we may not have access to all the service books when things really hit the fan, you know. And I'm not saying this to scare people, but the Holy Spirit has given us this this warning, and we should just heed it. And I think the saints, uh, that's where the message comes from. I think. You know, in, in previous episode, we talk about a lot of these prophecies, but Metropolitan Neophytos, in his interview in February, he said that the Russian elders predicted this, whether it was Elder Jonah, Elder Zosima, St. Lawrence, St. Seraphim, uh, Abbas Galactia, all these others that he talked about. These are people who, you know, that he knows in his, he's friends with Metropolitan Nifri. He has, as a young man, he was exposed to the saintly elders above him that were have already not been canonized. He made it a point to fraternize and become friends with you know, all of the, the elders of his region especially, and that's the Black Sea and Ukraine is very much a part of that, and that's why Metropolitan Yofithos is still one of the saintliest hierarchs today, and he has felt so strongly to speak out because he has built relationships with these saintly people across Ukraine and Russia and the Holy Land and everywhere else. But at the end of the day, this is all, um, you know, this is, as, as, as Metropolitan and St. Pacio said, the prophecies become headlines, and it starts to become a little bit odd. When you know you, we started this show, and we said all these things, and now it's you know, it, I mean it's, it's it feels good, I guess, in a way to be vindicated, but it's also a bit bit unsettling because the, the stuff we know comes next starts to get really unpleasant, especially if you listen to the last episode and you want to listen to what Saint Joseph, Elder Joseph of Vatopedi, has to say. You know, we we hope that you know some of that was just you know a bit of an exaggeration for an effect to bring repentance about, right? We hope because you know some of the body counts get in the hundreds of millions, and that's nothing that anybody wants to see. But when it, when it comes to the situation as of right now, of course, Biden has just left uh, Israel. He was not able to meet with Mahmoud Abbas or anyone of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, the Palestinian Authority and the Jordanians canceled on Biden after the bombing of the hospital. That really led to a big response from the Arab world. And the Arab world and the Muslim world in general, frankly, is more united than ever. I think a lot of the responses from Turkey and Egypt, who have really been a lot more neutral on this issue and even considered allies of Israel and the United States in the region, their strong response, I think, really frightened a lot of people, of course. And as of right now, it appears that the U.S. is the one waging urging caution. All of the leadership, whether it's Netanyahu or Gallant or Gavir, they're all ready to go in on this ground invasion. The U.S. is just like, look... They, I think Biden, I think, even hinted that if you guys go all in on this ground invasion like this, we may not help you for if Hezbollah responds in kind. You know, that may not be a guarantee of U.S. support. And that probably shook Netanyahu a little bit and made him start to reconsider. But uh, as far as, you know, we, of course, had Blinken was there. Uh, Biden, obviously, going there as well. Rishi Sunak, Rishi Sunak went there. And Rishi Sunak, compared to Biden, was much more you know, prostrative towards Israel. It proves that the UK is even more of a colony of Israel in many ways, has been for such a long time. You know, it shows those Nathan Rothschild roots, you know, right after Meyer Amschel. It really, really goes back. 
but you know he went prostrated himself to Netanyahu, really stood with them. Whereas Biden, in one of his later statements, actually, you know, he did talk about you know freedom for the Palestinians, them having their own state, uh, you know, Islamophobia as well as anti-Semitism, which I'm sure did not make any of the Jews happy. But you know, in many ways, there and there's even talk of you know all these young staffers in the White House are incensed with how much support is being given towards Israel. So it just shows you that after the Boomer generation, the Israel worship from the from the public in America is is totally out the window. But as far as the Islamic world uniting, we saw the black flags of mourning, mourning, which is usually then followed by war, flying over their most relevant mosques. And I think in the immediate Iraq, Iran, the world Iran is having to kind of restrain its proxies, the ones it has in Iraq and the Houthis, because they're just wanting to go to war. They're just wanting to go all out on Israel. The Houthis, who we know basically won their counterinsurgency against the Saudi-backed forces in Yemen, the Houthis control the you could guys call it the westernmost third or quarter of Yemen, and they're directly funded by Iran and have some pretty powerful missiles, but they really destroyed a lot of U.S. artillery because the U.S. was funding Saudi Arabia's war against the Houthis in Yemen for a long, long time. But the Houthis, they launched missiles over the Red Sea at Israel just because they declared solidarity with the Palestinians, and a U.S. carrier and ships had to shoot those down. And the, the Houthis were just, they went all in. And at this point as well, the militias in Iraq, specifically the Sunni Iranian-funded ones, have all united. Uh, they have formed a, a united front. The Islamic resistance in Iraq, which uh, previously, you know, this is a new kind of united, I don't know how many the numbers are exactly, but they have launched at least eight rockets and drone attacks against U.S. troops within Syria and Iraq over the last 72 hours. And all of this is after the Al-Aqsa flood operation, and I believe this the Iranian proxies formed an Al-Aqsa flood support operation room, like they kind of grouped together and have been piecing this new element of what they call the axis of resistance together now. And so basically with the Syrian Arab army in Syria, uh, there's other Iranian proxies there that may need to unite. Now we have in a united front in Iraq, Hezbollah, and then Hamas. It seems that you know these forces are uniting to put even more pressure on Israel, which I think Iran's idea is that this will cause Israel to go much more gentle on their ground invasion and really be unable to effectively take over. But there are reports now that Israel and the United States want to work with some of the more sympathetic, more Western sympathetic Arab countries in the United Nations to form an interim government, which, you know, would satisfy, I guess, some of the Western and Israeli desires, which is all anti-Hamas. They want to just get rid of Hamas, get out of Hamas. So then I guess if they could set up a sort of, you know, something akin to the, uh, the fake Belarusian government in exile or, you know, the fake um, Burmese, you know, Myanmar government that they still recognize over there, something like that for, for Gaza and Palestine, then that would give Hamas even less legitimacy and give, you know, a more peaceful option. You know, the Pal it, maybe it would allow maybe Egypt and these other places to take in more Palestinian refugees, which that's the big thing. Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, they aren't going to take any of these Palestinian refugees. Egypt said it views that as a declaration of war from Israel to force them to take a million plus Palestinians. So that is really where the rub kind of hits. And the, I don't know how that's going to necessarily resolve itself, but it's, uh, it's very much in flux right now. So I guess we do agree with Egyptian politicians that mass immigration is a form of warfare. I, I mean, yeah, it's completely right. And the Jordanians, of course, we felt yeah. felt it like last week, right? We spoke about 
Black September in Jordan in the, 19, in the 1970s and how the local Jordanians and who are really related to the Palestinians almost like they are Arabs as well. And they speak, you know, obviously they all speak Arabic, so they're very similar culture-wise, but even they couldn't live alongside the Palestinians in peace because just that the groups are very different. But in fact, in Western countries, we're told multiculturalism is the, the cream of the crop. It's just a way to go. But these Middle Easterners just simply cannot get along. Even Lebanon itself, which was known for a completely horrendous, bloody Yugoslav level, no offense to Yugoslavia, of course, but that country, of course, naturally constructed by the Tito and the communists, fell apart in a horrendous civil war. Lebanon had a very similar one. And the fears are, right, Conrad? Uh, Stelkov mentioned this, who we'll talk about later on, but he does mention that Lebanon, it, it is the only thing that's really keeping it together is the, this big Hezbollah factor. So, again, these aircraft carriers removing Hezbollah, I think it would be an even, even greater achievement than destroying Hamas, frankly, in the south and in Gaza. If Hezbollah is completely destroyed, the United States and Israel, they get rid of a, an enemy who not only is funded by Iran and is more Shia, like religiously, I suppose, more uh, more anti-Semitic, you could say, but in, in fact, it would almost remove any threats from Israel because, again, Syria, as involved as Assad and Syria is in this conflict on the side of, yeah, I guess, on the on the side of the, I guess, Islamic resistance against the state of Israel, they're very weak at the moment. And in fact, they have their own troubles. And give, I mean, given this recent headline here, so the fact that Iraqi uh, Muslim, this new sort of, I wouldn't say it's a new ISIS, because notice, ISIS was always somewhat pro-Israel, which gives you gives you the kind of the hint that perhaps ISIS, similar to Al-Qaeda, was completely a CIA-run op from the beginning because you look isis never had isis actually this past week isis got activated again suddenly out of nowhere why is isis attacking iranian militias in iraq it's absurd like well like is or is it that like are they really that do they really think it's not that obvious like it's oh, it's ridiculous I, I don't think they even care about that in fact look at the all the countries who oppose france in the uh in uh, around the ECOWAS and the sahel sakel belt in africa right because that those african stories didn't stop in fact, Wagner today is fighting alongside the Malian authorities and the authorities of Niger fighting against Al-Qaeda. Listen to these names, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and some local uh, extremist Islamic African, African alliances. And it's just like, right, so the United States, right, met up with France and they said, look, France, Macron said, look, I can't send forces to Africa, but US, can you activate some of your terrorist cells who you formed decades ago? And possibly can you use them to disrupt this, this region here? And US, of course, agreed. But thankfully, Russia's there to, you know, assist the local Africans in order to defend themselves against these, I don't even want to say Muslim extremists, because these people are not even real Muslims. In fact, they're just Wahhabists, Salafists, their religion is even, as you know, we're not Muslim. Me, me and Conrad aren't Muslim ourselves, but these are even more apostate versions of Islam itself. It's just completely degenerate CIA created. And this is, you know, this is almost a fact at this point. But yes, ISIS, now that these Muslim authorities are appearing in Iraq, who are, you know, are opposing Israel, I think it's more of a genuine reaction and a much needed one. Because remember, Iraq was a traditional enemy of Israel going back to the 90s. Saddam Hussein, Israel, Netanyahu himself personally pushed the entire idea, we spoke about this a few episodes back, that you know, Iraq needed to be destroyed. Iraq was planning to build nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, all kinds of bizarre fake news came out. And naturally, this was used to spark the you know post 9-11 tragic Iraq war, which took away millions of lives. So naturally, you know, Israel, Israel and the Iraqis don't get along on a very fundamental level, despite what the, I guess you could say, the puppet government of Iraq would have you think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very much... I mean, the whole situation is just really obvious that we talk about this in the ether hour that there's a certain you know group that really just kind of has its strings all over the world and is able to activate all sorts of groups to 
to distract their enemies, to make their, their whims occur. And Iran has constructed a very vast web network to prevent a lot of those things from affecting, you know, their goals, which is, you know, disrupting the Zionist entity and, you know, maintaining its sphere of influence in Iraq, Syria, and the areas around it, which ultimately this brings us to a sort of, you know, a more speculative part and kind of the World War Now analysis you're really listening for. And again, we've seen how strong Turkey has been supporting the Palestinians. It's really like they've been storming U.S. embassies, U.S. Citizens and people have been asked to leave Turkey. It's a really big deal. They've destroyed McDonald's. You know, McDonald's in Turkey has fallen. The anti-American rage got so strong. And and of course, we saw Tunisia. Uh, this just a little. I, I think of Tunisia and Turkey because the flags look so dang similar. But Tunisia, they are, they started to burn in synagogues in Tunisia. So Tunisia, anytime this type of thing comes, whether it has to do with you know Africans, you know Sub-Saharan Africans or Jews, they kick the dial up to eleven. So you know. Godspeed, Tunisia, I guess. But Turkey, it, it, it kind of raises the question, if they're really in this for the Palestinians, if they're really willing to threaten Israel, who for them is an ostensible ally, why are they still tying down Assad in the north? Why? I get that they're fighting Kurdish groups, but they, they're, they're encroaching on Assad's territory. They're causing Their militias are causing the Russians to have to hit them with powerful airstrikes. This is keeping Russian and Syrian, you know, pro-Assad forces distracted from what could be, you know, kind of providing cover, providing aid to either the axis of resistance and just the general peacekeeping force kind of showing Israel that they need to keep, they need to be safe and watch what they're doing or else something bad could happen. Like, why isn't Turkey doing that if they really are in this for the Palestinians? I think in short, it's probably, it probably comes down to political as well as human greed. Frankly, Turkey does want to extend its border. I mean, historically, Turkey did take up all of the Levant, Lebanon, Syria. Syria was part of the Ottoman Empire, as original as Anatolia was. In fact, the Muslim and the Turkic conquest actually came from the south towards the north as they slowly pushed the Byzantines all the way to the uh, Constantinople Peninsula. So, in fact, that entire region was, in fact, Ottoman Turkish prior to even Turkey proper today, you know, in fact, being Turkish. So they consider that as their historical domains, as their backyard. And I guess, it, you know, perhaps there are some theorists, the Turkish theorists, who know this a bit better than myself, but they could speak about some sort of Ottoman, Ottoman resurgence. And there is also, of course, the consideration that Turkey is not friendly with naturally the, uh, naturally Egypt, the anti- Islamic Brotherhood alliance going on there. So Turkey is very much aligned of the Islamic Muslim Brotherhood and all the entire message there. And again, Turkey was the last legitimate caliphate of the Muslim world until it fell apart after World War One and at the Turk took over. So Turkey does view itself as like it needs to reestablish leadership over the Muslim world, take it away from the Saudis, take it away from any of these bizarre countries like a resurging like some sort of Egypt or God forbid even Iran. But at the moment, Turkey and Iran are really on good grounds. But look, this tragedy occurring to the Palestinians, yes, has reunited Turkey uh, greatly. We've seen this past election in May, that's forgotten, right? All of that 50-50 close run, Erdogan and his opponent, it's just, it's completely gone. It's Turkey, we've never, I don't think I've ever seen the Turkish people so united. In fact, even uh, David Erhan, I think, speaks about it in some of his tweets, and maybe he'll even make a video about this, but the Turkish people are united around this idea that the Zionists are bullying our younger brothers down south who we used to have domain over. Because look, look before Great Britain created the, you know, the Mandate of Palestine, which it then sold to the, to the Zionists or even gave it to the Zionist Jews, Palestine and that land was part of the Ottoman Empire. And the Turks remember this because it's probably taught in their history, history books, it's taught in schools, etc. So they understand this land used to be peaceful under the Turkish Ottoman regime, which 
I think me and you, Conrad, would probably agree because look, this, that's when the majority of, I guess, even Russian Orthodox and the Jerusalem Patriarchate, look, it took a, it took about 600 years, but even the Greek Orthodox Church worked out a very solid relationship with the local Turkish authorities. Like there were periods of persecution and there was, you know, tensions here and there, but eventually they worked out a relationship. And then suddenly everything gets twisted. Lebanon goes into a civil war. Syria gets destroyed. Antioch is wiped off the face of the earth. You know, all these events occur and suddenly the Middle East is collapsing and simply because because, well, somebody post-World War II wanted to create an Israeli state as well as dissect this, whatever was left of the Ottoman Empire, according to some non-Christian designs. The dissection that we see of the Middle East today is anti-Turkish, but it's also anti-Orthodox in a way, because it prevents any sort of peace. It prevents missionary work. It's just, it's a, it's a cauldron of chaos. And the only people who benefit seem to be the globalists as well as the Zionist Israelis who actually, you know, are winning based on this. And Turkey understands. So Turkey has its own eschatological Mahdi type. You know, they see Israel as probably the throne of the, the future Dajjal, in their view, the Antichrist. So I think Turkish theorists, Turkish geopoliticians, you know, they probably have their own Dugin sitting there working things out like long term. I think they're playing the long chess game. They understand that Turkey will need to be... Um, will need to play a, a, a huge role in the future of Islam and the future of the Middle East. And I don't think they're going to, you know, the fact that uh, in Azerba, Azerbaijan just beat Armenia as well, and they see Azerbaijan as a certain fiefdom as well, I think mean, it all plays into it. This grandiose idea of power. Again, when they step against Greece, that's when the prophecies kick in. So as soon as Turkey looks west as opposed to south, we're going to see some really eschatological events take place, even more so than now. And we know, you know, it's all leaning towards a Russia-Turkey clash, but in many ways it seems that perhaps for, for it to get there, we might have to see a Turkish-Iran clash. And of course, we mentioned that that choke point for Turkey and Iran is Azerbaijan. And, and the question becomes, like, perhaps we might see, you know, Turkey, you know, in this united front with, with all the people against Israel, against the Zionist authority. Perhaps it commits troops to places on with a treaty, thinks that places where you think they would be neutral and everything. But then perhaps maybe Erdogan dies and then a new pro-Western group is able to take power. And, you know, those troops are then able to be used for, for purposes against, you know, Iran, against, you know, Russian forces or anything. We, these, these are all, we're, we're getting very speculative here. But what we know Iran and Turkey are not, are not exactly allies. And again, like the Turks are different from the Persians or different from the Arabs. Like these are the three big Muslim groups that, you know, in spite of everything, have truly been united in, against the Zionist entity and thus against America, despite, in theory, the Americans hoping to have both the Turks and the Arabs on their side against the Persians. So it's so it's it's really it's really come around on America. And the again the this is not the post nine eleven moment anymore. It's the post COVID post Ukraine moment, which is just a totally totally different animal. So and Dimitri, I think a certain character that we that we like to keep up with had had similar ideas about how Iran and Turkey, how this all might go. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning our our comrade in arms who is currently being detained unlawfully by the Russian uh, by the Russian legal system and the Russian Attorney General, the Chief Prosecutor of the Russian Federation, Igor Strelkov, of course, has given his opinion on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the, why we listen to him, well, naturally, we've spoken about him many times. He's probably the foremost Orthodox layman, ex, ex, uh, I guess you could say, expert on everything geopolitical and the, the voice that we trust given that he's an orthodox monarchist he's spoken to orthodox elders all over eastern ukraine he is a voice who i think we can give credence to and who we can trust and in fact his opinion really hasn't changed since i started following him in 2013 
So in fact, he he has a history, a ten, ten year long, consistent uh, consistent opinions, which I think we follow. Even if we don't, even if we disagree with him on sense, you know, simple things, it doesn't really matter. He's a trustworthy person to listen to. Now, his recent analysis was uh, was quite a similar one to my own and Conrad. I think he he essentially spoke. He said that look. Uh, the conflict cannot be resolved through negotiations for two main reasons. Israel cannot swallow the consequences of the Hamas attack, naturally, we agree, because it was externally and internally showed Israel to have a critical weakness as well, you know, naturally, and the entire Muslim world has seen Israel actually bleed. More than a thousand people have already perished and has shown that you know, Israel, you know, it's like that, like the ending of the movie 300, right? When Leonidas throws a spear at Xerxes' face. But that's a bit of a pop culture reference, which I don't think we'll make anymore. But it has shown Israel that look, there is there is a there is there is a chance that even the even with their modern equipment, the Israeli army can in fact take can take take a beating from you know understaffed, undermanned Hamas militants. And this, of course, has given hope. Now, Stilkov continues says that essentially Israeli society is very vengeful and calling for calling for all the, all the Israeli deaths to be avenged, which, again, we expect that to, to be the case, naturally. We agree. Stelkov goes on to say that, of course, factually speaking, R Russia is in a very tight and essentially a military alliance with two two countries which are actively involved with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on a rhetorical basis, as well as probably even a funding basis. Syria is assisting Hezbollah, as well as Iran is assisting Hezbollah. Iran and Syria are both Russian allies at the moment. So Russia has a really strong tie to the conflict, and naturally it how it disconnects from this, it's not really clear. Stelkov's opinion also is that Russia should, under any no circumstances, should Russia get involved, under any circumstances, should Russia get involved in the current conflict. This is a very interesting protectorate type of position. He said the conflict makes no sense on any level. Nobody benefits from it. Israel doesn't benefit. The US doesn't benefit. EU doesn't benefit. It feels very eschatological, he says. And he says that a lot of conspiracy theories, of course, abound. He states that the fact that Hamas has succeeded in this attack obviously shows the unprecedented incompetence of both the CIA and Mossad. And in his personal opinion, this would not, this provocation by Hamas would not have been possible without either one intentional negligence from these intelligence agencies or two, an actual involvement of Israel and Mossad working together with Hamas, maybe through plants or through some sort of federal agents infiltrating Hamas and actually pushing this idea that we're going to make this attack succeed and orchestrating it because it's simply, it's unprecedented. It's impossible for this attack to succeed that well, given the fact that Israel has always kept a very strong, strong stance down there in the south around Gaza. Not saying that's a good thing. It's just simply stating a fact here. Naturally, Igor Stilkov moves on to say that Russia, of course, uh, is in a very tight situation with Turkey. And this has always been the fact since the Russian involvement in the Syrian conflict. The fact that Russian Russian supply lines and logistics depend on going through the Bosphorus Strait, through the Mediterranean, you know, again from the from the Syrian port, the Mediterranean through the Bosphorus into the Black Sea. That's the only way Russia can really supply its forces in Syria, including the Russian aircraft, which is stationed in Syria at the moment, as well as any on ground personnel they have there. It's a very tough supply line, and Turkey is a natural ally of NATO and of the United States. So, and naturally, a grain deal complicates things. So Russia, can it even get involved in this conflict? Again, open question. Stilkov doesn't really answer it. He says that if Russia does get involved, it will need to give massive concessions to Turkey, similar to the ones given in the Karabakh conflict. So Stilkov believes, of course, that uh, Russia completely consented to our, uh, Azerbaijan, who was a very close ally of Turkey, of giving them Nagorno-Karabakh and that entire region. And I, I think that's probably true. Russia didn't get involved in, and in fact, it's peacekeepers. Remember what happened to the peacekeepers who were killed? 
and we're not even sure who even killed them in the first place. Was it Turkish personnel? Was it Azerbaijanis? But the Russian peacekeepers were completely null and ignored point. And I think that that speaks to the fact that Russia was essentially gave Azerbaijan and Turkey a free free card here. And in fact, many of those free cards, which again speaks to northern Syria, Steel Club's analysis says that, look, Russia will need to give consents to Turkey and Syria. So in fact, maybe a lot of northern Syria will need to be conceded to Turkey if Russia becomes involved in this conflict in the Middle East. Very, very tough decisions. It's not very easy for Russia to act. And he says, then <laughs> this is the very key point here, Steel Club's third point in the, in the Russian Federation itself, there has always been, and it has not gone away recently, a very powerful Jewish lobby in government bodies, at the top of business, and especially in the mainstream media. At the same time, tens of millions of the Muslim population, indigenous as well as newcomers, so we're talking about the mass immigration, right? This is me throwing in my opinion. The Chechens, the Dagestanis, obviously the Tatars, they want Russia to go and assist the Palestinians, but how can Russia do this if its elite is tied in with the, you know, the Jewish powerful businessmen and media stars in Russia itself? Very, very tough. Naturally, newcomers, we're talking about the Kyrgyz, the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, the people from Kazakhstan who are, you know, essentially crowding all of southern and southern Russia and Siberia. And there's this mass immigration issue is entirely a different point. But Stilkov, their opinions need to be considered because these people are fervent Muslims and they want Russia to assist. And they're, of course, uh, you know, parading around, giving their opinions online as well as in person. Stilkov continues and says, close economic ties with the Arab oil producing powers as well need to be considered, which Russia, again, is a big, you know, uh, seller of oil, crude oil, as well as pr processed oil, many of which will inevitably be drawn into the conflict, many of these Muslim nations. Under these conditions, it'll be extremely difficult for the Russian Federation to occupy a neutral position and avoid being drawn into the conflict, either on the side of Israel or in the side of the Arabs, because Russia has these two big drawing points. One is the, the Jewish oligarchate. And if you look at the Forbes 100 list, most of those uh, oligarchs who are listed as Russian have a dual Russian-Israeli citizenship. This needs to be considered, including Michael Friedman. The, the fourth largest bank in Russia is run by a man named Michael Friedman, who is essentially, who's recently been accused of collaborating with the Ukraine, but that's a different story. But Michael Friedman is a Russian-Israeli uh, dual citizen. Like, how does that even work? So you're telling me one of the largest banks is run by somebody with mixed allegiances in Russia itself? Very, very strange position, again. But Stilko was completely right. This lobby inside of Russia will cause great problems, considering Russia is really, it's kind of, it, it naturally, the only position it has to defend the Syrians, but how does it get involved here? It really shouldn't. And again, his opinion is that Russia should stay out of it. I think that's generally the analysis that he gives here. I can't really say that he's wrong, but I guess we'll see how this plays out. He's obviously not giving any predictions, mainly just assessing the situation as it is based on the facts given. Well, and he makes a big point that Russia needs to focus on Ukraine. And right now, it does seem that there are some pretty strong movements being made in Donetsk region towards Avdivka. Dmitry might have a few more details on that as well. But Strzokov continues to say, you know, the China-Iran-Russia axis, he's pretty confident that that is a fairly unassailable alliance these days. And again, Iran's presence in the region is really going to be key in dragging, you know, both of those characters into a place where they may not want, may not want to be dragged. And of course... The U.S. is now saying that they're trying to get more and more aid, like huge aid for Ukraine and Israel now. Janet Yellen, you know, Jewish Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, says that we can afford to fight a two-front, fund a two-front war in Ukraine and in Israel. Of course, I wonder why she might have an interest in funding those two specific wars. But of course, the, you know, the, uh, the Gentiles in the State Department insist that our focus is China, but I don't think that can be sated anymore. I think China's really looking at Taiwan, and they've got to be looking at those Keenan Islands. Like, what are they going to do? 
Are they going to really go to war with us over some islands right off of our coast? So Xi Jinping, you know, we're all curious. But I think this is interesting. This was posted on CIG, and this is this is just terrible stuff, you know. I mean, support for Hamas and anti-Semitism. Social networks in China during the war in Israel. China's social media trends amidst the outbreak of the war in Israel provide troubling insights into the initial sentiments of Chinese netizens, including but not limited to a concerning layer of anti-Semitic rhetoric being shared on a relatively wide scale. Support for the terrorist organization Hamas, as well as the justification of the mass murder of Jews, was alarmingly prevalent throughout the comments of most of the related Weibo posts. Chinese netizens called for Hamas to continue launching rockets at Israel and expressed hopes that Hamas could destroy Israel once and for all. The sentiment was heavily intertwined with and reinforced by a disturbing mixture of anti-Semitic tropes, hate speech, sexual objectification, and references to the Holocaust with anti-Semitic symbols like swastikas and references to Adolf Hitler. The Chinese censors have not deleted or blocked these posts, while at the same time, posts telling the Israeli story are being blocked. The Chinese sentiment points to a coming decoupling between Israel and China. To Israel, Beijing is not a neutral country anymore, nor is it relevant to the Middle East future peace process. I highly doubt Israel liked China facilitating Saudi-Iranian rapprochement before their big supposed deal with Saudi Arabia, which has now been completely destroyed. And again, maybe China's going to be in one of those positions like Egypt, like Jordan, you know, like uh, some of these Islamic countries, that, Saudi Arabia, that by their population alone will be dragged into supporting Palestine. You know, maybe the Chinese, they're not even Muslim, but they seem to, to really be passionate against against the Israeli cause. Because I think they understand the true roots of the, you know, the unipolarity versus multipolarity strike. But I think before we talk about a few other interesting tidbits of information and maybe talk about the East a little bit more, we've got to talk about Avdivka. Yes, of course. Uh, of course, Avdivka, the cauldron is closing on this like Ukrainian defense outpost, which has been bombarding Donetsk for the last, you know, over five years consistently. Now the Russians are closing in on it. Just recently, the Russian, I mean, just actually a few hours ago, the Russian Ministry of Defense has announced that it has assaulted 32 defense positions of Ukraine between Avdivka and Klishevka, these two villages. And Avdivka is more of a town, but Klishevka is more of a village, I guess. And 155 Ukrainian troops have been uh, have been killed in one fell swoop. So the Russians are definitely closing in. They want this local victory, similar to Solidar uh, back in the day prior to Bakhmut falling. And I think it would be, it would you know, boost Russian morale quite a bit and, and put something positive into the news stream that, look, the Russians are not just wasting taxpayer dollars. And, you know, frankly, this could be a precursor. The fall of Avdeevka in northern, the northern Donetsk Oblast and just being north of Donetsk, not only are there going to be military triumph parades in Donetsk itself, but also there'll be, um, if they do catch any sort of, you know, uh, Azov Battalion, right sector officials, there's probably going to be trials as well as um, potential, maybe even capital punishment executions of these, you know, Banderite, neo-Nazi type folks in Donetsk itself, which did not happen the last time the Azov Battalion folks were caught in Mariupol. So when the cauldron closes, and a cauldron, what we mean by that is when the Russian troops completely surround Avdeevka and there's no retreat, the Ukrainians will be forced into a complete surrender, or of course they'll die defending themselves. But again, the suggestion is that they should probably surrender and face justice finally. So Again, uh, it's probably a great victory for Russia and a huge morale, but it's probably even a precursor, I would say, to a potential second mobilization, which we've been speaking about for ages, but Russia has held off. So again, what needs to precede a second mobilization? A great victory, right? In order to boost the morale of the, the new conscripts, the new people taking up arms. I think that's very much needed. You can't really follow mobilization after a really bad defeat because that'll kind of leave a bad taste in the air. But the Russians are doing great. Uh, meanwhile, on the Zaporozhye end, 
naturally the, the death of a very notable figure, Alexander Mozhaev. need to mention that because he had the really famous Cossack beard. An Orthodox Donetsk Cossack whose ancestors pre-revolution were also Cossacks has died, unfortunately, in Zaporozhye. So memory eternal to him. The only reason I mentioned him was because he, he became somewhat of a meme in 2014, given his epic, absolutely caricaturish beard, a gigantic beard, and his Russian papaha hat, which is one of those tall Cossack hats. He looked like something out of a um, pogrom caricature, like just a typical Cossack type of character holding an AK, a black AK-47 with some optical attachments onto it. Like he looked amazing, but he's finally fallen after nine years of hard fighting for the Russians and the Orthodox troops in Donetsk, in Zaporozhye. He has died on the Zaporozhye front, so memory eternal to Alexander, but not really that many news besides the Russians surrounding Abzievka at this point. Yeah, I think actually there's some rumor that Russia's trying to put 20,000 troops kind of on the border with uh, Sumy and Kharkov regions up there, and I think there's ideas that that's to distract some forces that the Ukrainians might be sending into Avdivka, force them to spread their forces thin, and really take Avdivka, seal that cauldron, and start to actually secure all of Donetsk Oblast. Maybe that's a goal that's being achieved, secure all of Donetsk Oblast, provide relief to Donetsk City, so that Donetsk City can be an actual resupply hub for Russian military people, so that they can continue to push and take some of those Oblasts that Scott Ritter said they might be taking soon, you know, Nikolaev, Odessa, Chernigov, Sumy, Kharkov, Dnipropetrovsk, you know, these are places that we think within the net, whenever that mobilization comes, or whenever the next big arrow push, perhaps February 2024, we're going to really be expecting that whenever that comes. But again, Sevastopol continues to be bombarded. We know there's MiGs flying in the south of the Black Sea, but we're really hoping that perhaps Putin, you know, if, if NATO forces in the west are spread thin enough, maybe we can start shooting down some of those, you know, Royal Air Force and United States NATO reconnaissance planes that are feeding, you know, Black Sea fleet positions and, you know, direct positions towards the Ukrainian forces so they can bomb Crimea and whatnot. So I'd like to see some of those shot out of the sky as well. But, you know, there's there's other interesting fronts, whether it's uh, New Heavenly Jerusalem stuff or, you know, some stuff perhaps from the new possible czar. So, you know, some great things happening all over the world. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of royals, of course, uh, descendant of Nicholas I, Russian Orthodox Emperor, who reigned in the 1820s and 30s, on his mother's side, Gabriel Doroshin returns to Donetsk, his home city, where him and his wife and and his daughter live and reside on one of the farms in Donetsk, and he returns back to military service after uh, an interesting stint and a series of interviews and you know his trips he's taken from Rostov to Moscow and Petersburg, and he's traveled all around Russia giving interviews and his opinion on the SMO as well as provided um, you know much humanitarian aid support and fundraising for the troops on the front line. Gabriel Doroshin, we spoke about him earlier. So um, again, a descendant of the Romanov dynasty. Not much can be said. He's he's a very outstanding young man. Just recently turned 27 on the 14th of October, on the uh, feast day of the protection of the Fiatokos, the intercession of the Fiatokos feast day. His birthday always falls on that feast day, so pretty easy to remember. But uh, turning 27, and he's made naturally on social media. He's made very active comments about the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He hasn't hidden his opinion before about you know uh, them boys. And some of their acts in the past, especially surrounding his family and what they've done to Russia. But in this particular stance, he's directly opposed the Israeli oppression of the Palestinians. So just going to read his quote, Gabriel de Roshan says, Well, let us discuss who is a barbarian, who is a beast, and who has the most terroristic methods. They have killed, tortured, and held this land for over 60 years. Let's stop thinking emotionally. Let's start finishing uh, thinking rationally, managing, making decisions that require us, they require us to be, to win and be pragmatic. 
whatever one may say, it is in our favor that basically Israel shouldn't have a place in Palestine and the Middle East. So Gabriel Doroshin has openly spoken out, of course, in support of Palestinians. His comment here was followed up by photographs of the Gaza bombings of Palestinian flags. And in fact, it's very interesting that this really powerful figurehead, I guess, for the future Russian movement, Russian monarchist movement, because he himself is a monarchist, despite not stating clearly that he's going to be a runner-up to the throne. He says, look, if the Russian people call upon him, he will take up the mantle of an Orthodox Tsar, which, you know, we don't necessarily disagree with that, but, you know, that still needs to be said. And just the fact that he he openly supports the, the right side in this conflict, which in this case was the oppressed Palestinians, he doesn't have to be pro-Hamas, as he said. You know, it's it's let's talk about who actually is using the terroristic methods. And in a large part, it it as, as much as Hamas is doing terroristic acts on one end, of course, with the con complete consent or lack of lack of awareness by Mossad in order to stop it, we see what Israel is doing is 10 times worse, if not 100 times worse. Now, bombing Orthodox Christians, we, we can't be happy about that. And Gabriel Doroshin really isn't isn't interested in that either. And here's why this sort of opinion is important. And, you know, notable figures in Russia at the moment, we really can't have people who are lukewarm or not attentive. We need figures like Gabriel Doroshin, like Igor Stilkov, Pavel Gubarev, etc. These figures that they started the 2014 conflict, they're aware. Gabriel Doroshin wasn't was involved in the Donbass affair as well. He was 18 years old in 2014, so almost 10 years ago now. Now he's 27, just turned 27 a week ago. And in fact, it should be considered that these people, they understand what's happening, what's going on in Ukraine, what them boys are doing to, to the land, what kind of plans they have. And just recently, one of the Ukrainian politicians actually openly, this, this really interesting politician, right? So this politician openly spoke about what we discussed on one of our air episodes, the Heavenly Jerusalem Project. He spoke about this on Russian television. Now, mind you, a lot of silly stuff gets said on Russian TV, but whenever this particular subject gets brought up, the fact that it could be prosecuted as potentially anti-Semitic under sections 280 and 282 of the Russian Criminal Code, you know, it gives you some sort of, you know, it does raise a few, raise a few eyebrows. Like, okay, you have to really substantiate your comment here. And this former politician, his name is Ilya Kiva. He was a former, now mind you, former member of the right sector, which is the Bandera neo-Nazi organization in Ukraine. So a former Ukrainian neo-Nazi, he defected to Russia, and now he's a an active Russian political commentator. So a very broad history here. But Ilya Kiva appears on Russian TV and actually says, "Yeah, so there's a potential that um, Heavenly Jerusalem will be uh, will provide us with, you know, will provide us with an alternative. At least we'll provide the the Israelis with an alternative." And his direct quote is, "This is Ilya Kiva on TV. He says this: Israel will lose to the Muslim world in this war and will make its sacred resettlement." Jews will make a sacred resettlement to the place where the Tzadziks came and appointed 300, 500 years ago. Tzadziks are like Kabbalistic priests in this uh, Hasidic tradition, right? So essentially similar to a rabbi, you could say a senior rabbi. And dying, they left their graves as a farewell, as a fair way for their people who should move to the fertile lands of Western Ukraine. In fact, to the place where they had always once lived. So what is he exactly suggesting? So he's suggesting that potentially the Israelis will be returning home to the land from which they came. So Ukraine, right? Heavenly Jerusalem, or as some as some say, New Kazaria. So again, it's funny that all these former Ukrainian neo-Nazis have this particular opinion, and they're not really afraid to say it outright on Russian television. And it's not even looked down upon, right? So he mentioned this again in his telegram. So we'll, we're kind of going to look into this question a bit more as, as news progress. But 
yeah, it's a little bit uh, a little bit interesting, Conrad. That it's almost like our episodes almost pre they pre pre run the news. It's like we speak about a subject and then it comes up literally in a headline two weeks later. No, it really is uh, quite fascinating, and I think uh, the fact that uh, Kiva, you know, is saying this, and you mentioned that in theory some of these could go against certain, you know, World War Two, post World War Two, you know, philo very philo-Semitic Soviet, you know, laws, but it seems that you know. As long as those those these things aren't be being used to you know go against you know the Russian presidency and the Russian army and everything that these things are kind of you know permitted much more socially permitted than they would be in the United States and ironically on the same subject uh, Vyacheslav Salnikov, associate professor at Voronezh State University, he stated that the Muslim involvement that the involvement of the Muslim world in the conflict with its growing power threatens the existence of the state of Israel. And where will the streams of refugees flow to? It is not excluded that they will return to their historical homeland where they lived before moving to Israel. In the post-Soviet space, this is the former sedentary line in Ukraine and Belarus, where under certain circumstances Jews from Israel and other countries may return. At least under the current president of Ukraine, this is quite possible, he said. And uh, so it seems that whether this is among, you know, Russian academia or, you know, a, a radical right-winger who perhaps he defected to the Russian side because he... You know, perhaps he was, you know, aware of, you know, certain issues with the control of world Jewry and decided to, you know, decided to join the other team, realizing, you know, where, where certain allegiances lie, you know, realizing maybe I shouldn't be fighting for Vladimir Zelensky and someone of his particular persuasion. But, you know, it's very interesting. Be sure to listen to our New Heavenly Jerusalem episode. We'll have it linked below. Again, like you said, Dimitri, it's, it's, it's great being vindicated, but it's also, you know, a little bit frightening. Yeah, that's right. And naturally, these these world events, as they develop, there'll be a lot more stories about where exactly, what exactly will take place in the Middle East, whether there'll be a peace agreement or whether or not there'll be a massive migration. And look, uh, at this point, it's like the the option of the Palestinians, what the Israelis are actually telling them to do is to leave, to go to Egypt, to go to Jordan. They're telling them to leave. So it's not like we're promoting the great exodus of Jews somewhere to Europe or to overseas, it's not, which is somewhat genocidal. No, the Israelis themselves in the first instance are telling Palestinians to leave their own land. So, I mean, like, look, it's, it's almost like the tail is wagging the cow here, in fact, or, or the, uh, the red uh, heifer. So, yeah, it's, it's a little bit it's a bit, little bit of a weird situation. We're talking about a mass migration of peoples uh, and a potentially a mass exodus in, back into Europe. Very, very eschatological, I think. Yeah, I mean, people are always worried about where are the millions of Palestinians going to go, but maybe it gets flipped on its head. And we're thinking about where do millions of, you know, Khazarians, Israelis go. But... We're going to start to wrap up here, but I think an important geostrategic, you know, international relations point we need to make is what are the most, what are the countries that, you know, perhaps in spite of maybe knowing better and having a population that, you know, well, maybe biased one direction is really going all in for Israel. We see India, we see the United Arab Emirates. And while unfortunately the population is very much not inclined towards Israel, the Greek government, of course, all in, you know, on Zionism, of course, completely owned. What else would you expect from a, from a debt slave government? But not just, you know, their own disposition, whether it's the UAE being the target of the most, you know, Western, you know, rapprochement with Israel, they've been really targeted with that, India and their Hindu power structure being anti-Islam, so supporting, you know, Israel, and of course, you know, Saudi Arabia, they've kind of, they would be part of this as well as far as with the UAE goes and the power and the, you know, diplomacy specter, but 
between their rapprochement with Iran and their population just being holding them so accountable, they've had to scrap their Israeli relations altogether. But this relates to, to the IMEC, the India Middle East European Corridor, which ultimately is a you know, it's just a big trade corridor from shipping trade routes, possible even planned pipelines, overland roads through the Arabian Desert that basically takes people from Mumbai and India through the Straits of the Persian Gulf, you know, that are controlled by Oman and the UAE and Saudi Arabia, of course, through the deserts of Saudi Arabia to Israel at the port in Haifa, shipped up to Greece and the, you know, massive global shipping empire that are the Greek islands and the Greek shipping magnates. And this is, you know, in many ways, you could almost call it a little bit of an antithesis to the Belt and Road Initiative. This is India trying to get in on those kinds of things. This is Israel, you know, trying to counter, you know, Iran, Russia, China, perhaps, in some of these regards. And this would obviously be key trade routes for the U.S., who the U.S., we know, are probably really trying to keep India in check because they know that if China cuts us off from our dependence and the consumption we get from them, that we're going to need to quickly pivot to India and start getting mass-produced goods and stuff from that you know, massive population that recently actually surpassed China. So, Dimitri, what are your thoughts on on the IMEC? Yeah, I think it's it's a really, uh, I guess, advantageous project for the globalists, for the Europeans, and even for Israel itself, which will be able to benefit for all this, from all this trade and products essentially, essentially going through its land. Now, the only reason it's relevant to today's news is because IMEC, essentially, uh, you know, most of these countries agreed to it in late September at the G20 summit. Now, Naturally, this conflict today, the uh, IMEC line, and like, I guess it, it cuts directly through Israel, as you said, into Haifa. And so this conflict puts essentially the entire thing on pause. And naturally, India, just by default, is already very pro-Israeli, given their given their anti-Islamic stance and their particular long-term conflict with Pakistan, which could probably be an episode in and of itself. But India definitely, uh, as a as an opponent for China long-term, would benefit not just America, but also the world. Um, you could say the World Economic Forum, the globalists, all these powers who seek to... I mean, China has really made its stance very clear that China will stand with Russia on most issues. India also does not have... A seat on the Security Council, right, of the UN. So, in fact, India is looking for any opportunity in order to increase some of its trade exports of the global, uh, the, the, the world, essentially. So, in fact, it may even, uh, so to speak, get uh, get into this agreement with the globalists, not even knowing what the long-term consequences could be culturally as well as, um, you know, I think socially for the Indian people. Like this will not benefit them long term, even though it may bring some some semblance of economic prosperity. Now, of course, the Saudi Arabians benefit from this as they do. And this particular alternative, like who does it who does it bypass? As you mentioned, Iran. It doesn't involve Iran. This particular trade, this trade route completely ignores Iran. And it ignores another northern power. Like it benefits Arabs. It doesn't benefit the Persians and it certainly doesn't benefit the Turks. The Turks are completely ignored and the fact that these trade routes go directly to Italy and Greece and the Greek islands is just the complete middle finger, unfortunately, like so to speak, to the Tur- to Turkey, to Erdogan, to the loyal Erdogan who's kept his word on so many things, who's assisted NATO, the EU, who has held back all these immigrants from, you know, going into Greece and you know, has he's done so many positive things for his European allies and colleagues and in fact brought in Finland and Sweden into NATO and they're going to be signatories soon and he's done all these ben- you know beneficial things for the western powers and they spit in his face so again this really um powerful economic route is going to go for israel instead and so this this may even uh influence the fact that erdogan and the entire turkish society including by the way the kurds 
So the Kurds, the the Kurds also again agree with the main, main with the Turks and Erdogan that they want to support the Palestinians. So all of Turkey is united completely, including the Kurds as well, which is a little bit funny. But um, given their long term animosity amongst themselves, but Erdogan is not very happy. The Turkish elites are not happy. They're being bypassed. So again, very interesting economic development, which is at the moment on hold. And this would, uh, this would naturally create, an, again, a second route similar to the one for the Suez Canal and a possible alternative. Again, what this says about Egypt, who is a very loyal American-Israeli partner at the moment, I'm not sure. It could just be, honestly, this could be a big gamble, as you said, Conrad, against China and against Iran. This China-Iran-Russia axis, that's all it could be. It, it probably It's not, not even probably against Egypt or against the Suez Canal uh, trade route. It's not even talking about maybe a destabilization in that region. But it's in fact just saying that, look, we're going to have to power up India immensely quickly and very efficiently. We're going to need to have India develop economically very, like it'll, it'll have to compete with China long term. And that's the projection here. So the globalists, you know, they play on multiple fronts. They're playing 6D chess. So it's just about keeping up and following the news, seeing exactly how it'll play out. And naturally, Israelis are involved. So don't be surprised if you see on social media, a lot of uh, Twitter followers with Indian names, with Indian uh, profile pictures, with maybe even Hitler pictures supporting Israel and the Zionist cause. You know, it may seem contradictory, but there is a there is a backstory to it, as funny as that is. So, and despite the fact that Israel really doesn't like pagans or Hindus or anything like that, but it's a very bizarre alliance, which we'll see how far it goes. I've never seen so many swastikas supporting, you know, supporting the state of Israel. It's 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 fascinating. The the true IDF, you know, the Indian Israeli defense forces are really a force to be reckoned with online. It's very. I haven't seen this much activity since the infamous, you know, Indian African American race war on the timeline those those many moons ago. But, you know, about to wrap up here, I'll give you a chance, Dimitri, to give any last words. As of now, there seems to be extreme internet cutoffs, you know, no internet at all in northern Gaza. So this could be a, you know, this could portend a big ground invasion. We're always watching. They're having massive buildups. I think the, the forces are just ready to go whenever they're given the order from the defense minister and Netanyahu himself. So we're watching that very closely. Uh, as far as stuff going on in the east, we've seen some pretty futuristic weapons, railguns tested on the sea in Japan. So, you know, whenever this thing really goes off and major powers declare war, we're, we're going to be watching closely to see what kind of directed energy railgun technology is deployed because that's going to mark, you know, remember World War One and World War Two showed the world, you know, industrial mechanized warfare. Eventually, we're going to show the world, you know, uh, digital warfare and, you know, digital in the sense where still people are still getting, you know, shot and blasted and what that really means. So, you know, we've even seen, you know, Japan perhaps tested that railgun in response to North Korea aggressively, you know, increasing its production and now sending, apparently providing Russia with, with tank and artillery shells. So with all of that, before I do the plugs, Dimitri, uh, what are your last thoughts? Yeah, just the futuristic warfare, right? It's not just about artillery and drones and mines, as we see in Ukraine, causing the majority of casualties. We're also looking at mass immigration as a weapon, Egypt openly stating that. We're seeing hypersonic missiles. We're seeing new railgun technology. Lord knows what other missile missile technology being developed around the world. And we're seeing Russia scrap its nuclear test ban treaty, which, again, uh, only speaks to the fact that Russia, if this thing does escalate, will begin testing new nuclear missiles somewhere up north again, just like the U.S. has been allegedly testing nuclear missiles in Nevada, which is you know, a little bit like it sounds like we're back in the Cold War, but we're in fact beyond that. We're in this uh, at the beginning, uh, at the end of hegemony and at the beginning of this new world, this uh, essentially arising World War Three. So in fact, lots of new new stages of warfare are emerging, not just cultural, social, but again, technological as well. Very, very 
scary time, but again, there's always hope on the horizon, as we've spoken about. And yeah, let's pray for the Palestinian people in Gaza who, you know, as, as far as we're talking about a hypothetical, a hypothetical war or even a cold war, which is heating up, the people in Gaza are experiencing the equivalent of Operation Barbarossa right now as they're being bombarded into oblivion, including the, the Christians of Palestine, the the members of the St. Porphyrius Church in Gaza. We need to pray for all of those people and may the Lord grant them mercy and just protect them from the, from the Zionist bombs. I think that's a prayer simple as that. From from the enemy, essentially, will you know? May the Lord give them strength. I think that's the primary message of, of just the week, and I think that's what all the all the hierarchs are praying for and fasting for, as Father Trifon and the Patriarch of Jerusalem have informed us of. Yeah, Abbot Trifon made a call for this. We're going to have a link to the Order of Saint George, the Great Martyr, below. They have, I think, a fund going for the Christians in Gaza. So be sure to click on that. Uh, Metropolitan Yofitos, you know, who predicted all this in that same February 3rd talk, he actually talked about man-made earthquakes and what happened, you know, right before that Turkish election, not long after he made those comments, you know, man-made earthquakes. We talked about the, you know, the energy weapons that might have used that and other Turkish politicians even talked about that. So pay attention to Metropolitan Yofitos. And like you said, Order St. George the Great Martyr. Pay attention to the Antiochian Archdiocese website. Uh, you know, our Twitter page, we're posting the names of these people. There should be, you know, prayers and names of people you can pray for, places you can donate and support, and, you know, fasting and prayer directives from your local bishops on all of this. Especially, I know uh, Archbishop Peter also put out some things about, if you're in America, writing your local representatives about opposing Ukraine's persecution of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So we'll have a lot of this stuff linked. Be sure to check out our socials with all of that. We have all of these things on there on World War Now's Telegram. Our Telegram has exploded this week. World War Now Telly. Be sure to check it out. We've been shared by some big pages. We've gotten some scoops and everything. So be sure to check us out there. World War Now underscore on Twitter. The Twitter's also doing fantastic. Follow me there on Twitter. I'm Gnome Rad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter at Ocanonist. Be sure to follow us on Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. That's where you get everything. Subscribe for free to get every episode directly into your inbox a day early you get it earlier than the youtube channel and if you subscribe get behind the paywall on substack you get access to every episode of ether hour including our deep dives on controversial subjects like the new heavenly jerusalem and our most recent episode where we discuss the direct link between you know the history of you know jewish conflict often called pogroms in the early 19th century towards very even today uh, and how uh, early zionist terror was actually trained in the early you know socialist anti-czarist you know, revolutionaries that fought against the Tsar at the beginning of the 20th century, how this is all a direct linear connection. So listen to that recent episode. It's really good stuff. Worldwarnow.substack.com. With all of that being said, yeah, follow us everywhere. Continue to pray for the Christians in Gaza and Palestine. Donate at the link below. And with all of that, thank you so much for listening and God bless. <laughs>